From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. In the 20th century, neuroscientists were making tremendous advancements in understanding the brain. They were studying the brain at many individual functions and establishing a blueprint of the brain we know today. However, these studies lacked the dynamics of natural and uncontrolled brain processes. To make the next big discoveries in neuroscience, researchers need to study the brain in a more natural state, or what Dr. Katarina Stamoulis of Boston Children's Hospital calls the unsupervised brain. This approach requires collecting massive amounts of data and developing the computational tools to perform the analysis. Katarina Stamoulis is an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Her lab focuses on the development of novel computational approaches and mathematical models necessary to study the big brain data that will yield the next wave of advancements in neuroscience. Welcome, Dr. Stamoulis. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, you use large data sets, big data, to study brain function and processes. How much do we know about the brain? So with the development of many different technologies in the 20th century, we had the ability to learn a lot about the brain at different scales, from the micro scale of the synapse to the macro scale of large human brain networks. However, the vast majority of experiments that we have uh, based on the technologies that have facilitated them were experiments in very controlled um, settings. So laboratory settings where specific functions or specific sensory processes were studied. These experiments were necessary to be controlled uh, so that we are able to study individual functions or individual processes and systems in the brain uh, and therefore establish a blueprint of brain function in response to this, to individual cognitive demands or individual uh, types of inputs to the brain. However, these experiments are limited in that they do not uh, let us understand how really the brain functions in naturalistic settings as we walk and talk and process myriads of inputs and uh, perform multiple cognitive tasks at once. So for that type of experiments, which I see them as the next generation experience in neuroscience, we need big data. We need to collect a lot of brain activity, whether it is um, uh, electrical activity in the brain or with, uh, with new emerging technologies, we may even be able to collect uh, functional imaging data as well. But at, uh, at scales, at temporal scales that were not possible in control experiments where you go in, you have a set 
of tasks to perform, a, a certain number of trials is very well controlled. So here we would like to be able to um, study the brain in these unsupervised, let's say, settings where brain activity is recorded as we perform our everyday tasks and uh, we go about our day. Well, these kind of recordings are really big data. They are recordings that spans multiple hours under different conditions, and uh, we need a completely different set of tools in order to understand the brain, use this data and understand the brain at these scales. So what is the work you're doing now? So I have, I'm a computational neuroscientist, so I have different projects. I collaborate with a number of people in the community. Um, and uh, so my projects uh, span uh, different subdisciplines of neuroscience from sleep, where we're looking to understand how uh, sleep deprivation impacts the brain across scales during wakefulness and sleep. Um, again, using big data, data that have been collected for multiple days continuously. Uh, I also study the developing brain, so I collaborate with uh, experimentalists who collect large data sets in order to be able to understand the, uh, the development of normal brain function. So again, big data are necessary in those cases because even in typically developing um, children and infants uh, are experiences that help shape our brain circuits are so diverse that these um, recordings are very heterogeneous. Mm -hmm. So we need large data sets to be able to make uh, generalizable and reproducible um, statements about the development of uh, brain circuitry uh, during um, early life. Um, and I also collaborate with, um, with uh, clinicians who collect very large data sets from patients who are being continuously monitored, let's say, as pre-surgical, um, for pre-surgical evaluation purposes. And those uh, recordings, again, they're big data recordings, and provide a unique opportunity to look into this more... Unsupervised brain function, so without any controlled, uh, in the absence of control experiments. You didn't always study the brain. You began your career as an applied physicist, studying yes. underwater sounds and waves, correct? Yes. Um, could you describe the kind of work you were doing then? Yes, yeah, so my PhD was in underwater acoustics, and um, the, the project I was involved in uh, was... Uh, focusing on understanding the underwater acoustic environment in the Central Arctic. So I was at MIT, and uh, MIT historically had collaborated with, um, with uh, various institutions, including Woods Hole Oceanographic, and they were supported by the, by the Navy and in general the Department of Defense uh, since... I think this experiment started in the 70s and definitely in the 80s and 90s. And um, they aim to understand the very complex environment under the ice cap in the Central Arctic. So my project involved analyzing, again, big data. But in that case, it was big sound data 
collected continuously over hours um, from hydrophones suspended from the ice cap. And again, we were trying to understand and isolate the different sound sources that make up this very complex environment. What made you want to transition to neuroscience from that work? So I transitioned to neuroscience about 10, 12 years ago. And at the time, uh, several, uh, many physicists were considering neuroscience because the principles and the tools are very similar. So we all, um, in analyzing whether it is uh, data from geophysics experiments or sound experiments or brain experiments, the tools for analyzing the signal processing tools are similar. And also some of the concepts of looking at the brain as a dynamic system and um, uh, looking at the different source distributions. Those are very similar principles between neuroscience and other fields. Um, so like other scientists, like other physicists, I was considering um, a, a, a topic that would uh, where I could leverage my expertise in this big data analysis and this um, a vast experience in the physical sciences in order to solve exciting problems in biology. And that's why I consider neuroscience and transition to that field. You talked about some of your current projects and you talked about how what the similarities are with what you did before and kind of what you're doing now. Um, but what, did, what does it allow you to do? What does it allow you to find out? What are you kind of, are there any solutions that you're trying to get towards? Of course, yes. So uh, the tools that I use that are usually inspired by the physical sciences are uh, tools that allow us to extract information from brain signals in a more robust ways. So uh, there are a lot of traditional methods that have been uh, used in the field and people are using it across laboratories, but it's becoming more and more evident that, especially in the case of big, big brain data, which are noisy data, which are data co collected in non-controlled environment or from very uh, large cohorts of uh, of participants, whether it's infants or children or or adults, in, in such cases you need the right tool. So you need the, the next generation of tools that will allow you to extract this information that is relevant to understanding brain function, but to do so in a way that is reproducible and uh, that yields robust results that can be replicated across laboratories. And you said noisy data. I'm making an assumption about what that means, but could you explain to us what that means? So there are various types of noise in these um, signals, depending on what the cohort is. For so, for example, for a data sets that have been collected under non-supervised settings, in un in unsupervised settings, the data include um, motion artifacts, noise just because the person is just moving around uh, and going about their day. Of course, these are patients, so they're not exactly able to just go outside. However, um, still these data are plagued by these various artifacts as well as um, 
uh, noise, biological noise, right? So, and in the specific case of younger children and infants, the brain circuitry is not well developed in early life. So there is also biological noise or non-electromechanical noise or biological, but associated with the, the, with the fact that this, these circuits are not well developed yet. Could you tell us a little bit more about your sleep, sleep deprivation study? So this is a new study that we are about to start. This is with a collaborator who is a sleep scientist at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess. And uh, she, her expertise is in collecting these very large and multimodal data sets from um, healthy adults who are uh, undergoing a particular sleep protocol. So we, she's trying to understand um, how repeated sleep restriction and let's say recovery uh, affects various systems, right? The heart, the brain, um, and these are these are data sets that are emerging from these experiments that are truly va very valuable, but remain underexplored. So I bring my own expertise. Uh, in analyzing this kind of data with new tools, both signal and statistical tools, in order to really understand how this kind of um, uh, everyday uh, problems, such as sleep deprivation, impacts the brain across temporal scales, so mm -hmm. across during our entire wakefulness. So we know after a, a day, after a night of, uh, uh, of uh, sleep loss that we feel differently. So we would like to understand how is that re different condition reflected on our brain and our heart. Mm -hmm. um, thinking about the sleep deprivation project, what are some of the challenges you see in working with so much data? And I so, guess generally. So this is a really good question. So the in general, the community, as they look into big brain, big brain data or big data in general, are facing the issue of computational efficiency. How can we ha how can we, we comprehensively analyze this data? in a reasonable amount of time. So this is the first challenge. In addition to challenges related to specific tools, the most practical challenge is how can we leverage the resources that we have, whether at the institutional level or at the uh, national level, in order to be able to analyze this data and maximize what we can get out of them. So uh, I have another project uh, that is supported by the National Science Foundation to re to, that is really responding to that need. It is a collaboration between myself and my lab and the research computing here at the medical school to develop a platform for next generation neuroscience research that will allow us to process massive amounts of data in an efficient way. This is an example of how we leverage our resources in order to be able to do uh, more efficient research. Can we step back to the noise for a second? So you explain what it is. How do you kind of mitigate the noise when you're looking through the data? How do you separate and, and pull out the information that you need? And So one is uh, through method development. So we need methods that are 
either very robust to noise or they account for the noise. They, spe- they either model the noise or try to understand the noise and separate them. So w- one, re- one way that I deal with them is through this method development. So understanding how, um, uh, how this noise impacts a, a, a set of data and how to separate them. In some cases, though, noise is of interest. So biologically, noise is of interest. Noise implies heterogeneity and diversity in the data. So we would like to better understand. And again, we look at novel statistical tools in order to extract and separate the noise and and then focus on the noise, understand how that noise changes through the lifespan, across the lifespan, or how that noise changes throughout our day. So when we have these recordings that are being um, collected over several days continuously. Mm. You talked about collaborations about sleep deprivation and developing brain and some pre-surgical evaluation work. Is there anything you don't know about the brain or you're not collaborating with someone about that you would like to know? Oh, there are many different (laughs) (laughs) topics and areas that I would love to get involved in, but I haven't, I haven't today. Uh, Aging is Mm. another uh, area of great interest to me. Uh, Again, because in early life, you have the developmental period where the circuitry is changing rapidly as a function of experience and neural maturation and uh, and these kind of processes. But in aging, you have the the process of neurodegeneration. Mm. And again, the circuitry is changing and becoming more noisy because of aging. Mm -hmm. So I would love to get involved in that. Usually, the vast majority of my studies are on humans, so they involved always that macro scale of the human mm. brain. Um, to date, we don't have yet the tools to be able to robustly sample individual cells, the electrical activity of individual cells in the brain. So there are technologies that are being developed, including technologies that are supported by the Brain Initiative. And the grand goals of those technologies are to facilitate sampling even the human brain at resolutions not possible that were not possible before, including the individual cells and even eventually the synapse. When you were talking about the difference between macro scale of the human brain and kind of how you're getting the big data now and the idea of individual cells in the human brain, being able to get more data on that. Do you feel like that macro to micro scale, if you will, would enable you to know more about disorders? Would that speak to any of the future work? I think, uh, yes, for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this is the, this, this, the 21st century will, be, will allow us, I, I, I believe, given the technology that I'm seeing that, uh, that are being developed, it will allow us to bridge the micro scale to the macro scale, mm-hmm. even in the human brain, eventually. I mean, we're not there yet. Right. However, I also think that uh, various neurological or neurodevelopmental disorders are perhaps best studied in these more unsupervised settings. Mm -hmm. For example, 
disorders such as autism spectrum disorders, they have some characteristics and impairments that involve uh, how we pro how uh, people affected by these disorders process the outside world, how they communicate with this world. So social interaction, social communication has mm -hmm. been well documented to be impacted by these disorders. However, many controlled experiments have led to um, results that sometimes contradict each other. Mm -hmm. So I think that once we have a set, a big, big data, a set of appropriate tools, as well as the blueprint that we have from controlled experiments, that will give us a unique opportunity to now try to understand uh, these disorders at, at a completely different level. Mm -hmm. And eventually, perhaps even at the, at the cellular and the molecular level as well. And just so I'm clear, using that example of autism, um, when you talk about the noise, even in studies, would that be some of what you're talking about? Oh. So the social interactions and the other pieces that are not necessarily recorded with an instrument or a tool, but are do contribute to um, kind of the final outcome or reading of the entire situation? Yes, absolutely, because these disorders themselves are very heterogeneous. So there is noise in the sense of diversity and variability. Mm -hmm. So the more data we have from individual, let's say, um, uh, study participants or individual uh, humans who are affected by these disorders, the, the, the larger the data set, the more, um, the greater the opportunities for us to understand that heterogeneity. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Stimulis. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you. It has been wonderful being able to share our work and thank you for inviting me. Next time on Think Research. Part of what drove me to doing this kind of work was the, some of the frustration of being one-on-one -on -one with people and counseling and knowing that what I'm doing is just a very small fraction of their life. I would say 99% of our health is determined by factors outside of medical care. And so that's why I got interested in doing this kind of work. Dr. Ann Thorndike of Mass General Hospital explains how strategic food displays and labeling increase healthier eating choices in consumers. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.